Welcome back to The Aryan and the Jew, episode 7. I am Aaron Flam, and today we continue our discussion with Alexander Bard. I also want to remind you that before we go on to the podcast itself, Alexander Bard's new book with Jan Söderqvist, Digital Libido, Sex, Power and Violence in the Network Society, has finally come out. So you can always buy that online or in a bookstore. Now, Alexander Bard, enjoy. All right, so where did we leave off? Um, we had just talked about artificial intelligence, lynch mobs and strength and weakness. Culture That's versus nature, strength versus weakness and... Chaos versus order. Chaos, of course, and they're all intertwined with each other. So I'd like to start off now with you defining the concept of truth. Do you believe in truth? Is there something called truth? There are different kinds of truth. There is truth as an action, and uh, there's truth as a belief. And uh, that means I, I can simply say that certain statements are not true and disqualify those statements. And by keeping some statements that are not necessarily untrue, I could still keep the possibility open that they might be true. And that's what science is all about. So science is all about checking these hypotheses and see if they could be true or not. And if they're not true, in what way are they not true? So you could walk forward and have a new hypothesis and work, continue working on the new one. So for you, there are only temporary truths. No, 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 no. They, 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 no, that's not true at all. I mean, you, you, there are, of course, tautological truths. Like one plus one is two. Yes. Two is just the same thing as one plus one. So that's a tautological truth. You just stated the tautology, but that's a truth. It's there validly forever. So as long as you agree this mathematics and we agree that one plus one is two, then that's the truth that stands. But that's a constructed truth. So there can be a lot of truths like that that actually valid forever and don't change at all. Um, and then um, you can also have truth as an action. That means that I personify a certain truth. I have a certain belief and I act on it and I stay loyal to it. So it becomes a cause that I'm following. And this, this aspect of truth as an action is incredibly interesting and very underrated in contemporary society, but incredibly important. It, what Jordan Peterson calls logos. It's exactly this, to be logos, to be within logos. I mean, means to, to be the word, to be the truth, proclaim the truth and stay loyal to the truth no matter what happens and follow it through all the way. And this truth as an action is actually an interesting theory for many Marxist theorists too. For example, Alain Badiou, who is probably the leading French Marxist thinker today, has written extensively about being true to your cause and what that actually means. Uh, so what does he mean by it? He bases it on Heidegger, actually, uh, more than anything. And that's an existential identity. So compared to a chaotic world around you, you, uh, you check out and find out the truth about the conditions we're in and then you act on that and you personify that truth and stay true to its cause. And it's not about being superior to others. It's just about being true to yourself, the deepest sense. So truth can both be an action, a movement forward, and truth can also be, of course, the, the opposite of a lie, meaning that the lie is incorrect and has only destructive purposes. Whereas a truth has constructive purposes and is the correct version of events. We can call it factuality to separate it from truth as an action. So they're factual truths. So, so how, does, how does the world operate, for example? Then you have metaphysical truths and, and they're similar to the tautological truths or the not tautological. For example, when I say my philosophy that contingency is the only thing that's permanent. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, the only thing that never changes is the fact that things change. 
That, that is a realization of the fact that we live and we're tied to a timeline and everything operates with this timeline as its very foundation. So we're based in time. Everything we do and everything in our world is, is along a timeline. It's along the timeline, it's also valued. Something has value to us, whether it's had happened, could happen, or it's happening at the moment. That gives value to certain things. And, and this, this, when we're tied to time, well, time in itself comes with change. We wouldn't even recognize that there was time at all if there wasn't change. It's the fact that something changes from one moment to the next that makes us realize they're two different moments. And since things do change over time, even, even the laws of nature change over time. If, if what enough, do you mean by that? If you have enough time, you just have enough time, the current laws of nature in our part of the universe will change. To what? To other laws of nature. So you mean gravity will disappear? No, they're not saying anything like that. Are you that saying at all. that gravity will evolve into some other force? No, no, I'm saying that at all. I'm just saying that the current conditions of the universe, and we measure the universe in physics, for example, we only measure our part of the universe at a specific temperature, within a specific temperature, say from this lowest possible temperature to this highest possible temperature. We know for a fact that previously in the history of our universe, the universe has been way, way hotter than it is currently anywhere else in the universe. And obviously when it was way hotter, it operated differently from what it does now. So the laws of nature are dependent on where in time you are and what the conditions are at that specific point. Because the laws of nature have arrived at where they are depending on what kind of state they were in before. So they're depending on cause and effect previously in the past. So you could think of a universe that looks identical to us, but because it has a different history than ours, then definitely the laws of nature within that universe will be different than what we have right here, right now. These laws of nature were not predetermined. So there they, were no laws of nature before the universe existed. The laws of nature are tied to the universe as it exists now. And the laws of nature that we observe in physics are only the laws of nature that are bound to this specific region of the universe that we measure at this specific time. We cannot say that they're universal beyond that at all. And this was a great insight from Charles Saunders Peirce, the big father, the grandfather of, of American pragmatism. It was a great insight that actually we assume that the laws of nature exist before nature itself. And, and, and the problem with the idea that we believe that God exists before the, the world that God is supposed to have created is the fact that we always assume that the laws of nature exist before nature itself exists. What if we just decide that the laws of nature are only there together with nature at a given moment? But doesn't that lead to relativism? This is where pragmatism, because in, in a sense, pragmatism... Well, I don't care what it leads to, because I'm trying to find the truth here. <laughs> All right. If this is the truth, then you have to construct the metaphysics based on the truth. Because if you try to save a certain theory that you like, basing on assuming that you're going to ignore something that to you suddenly becomes relevant and, and truthful... Then you're going to base it on a line. Then it's not going to hold very long because somebody's going to criticize it and basically shoot, bomb and shoot your basement of the whole building and then everything falls apart. You, you, cannot, you cannot build anything on what you want to be the outcome of it. That is just intellectually dishonest. You have to look at the reality itself, factuality, the universe as it exists. That's exactly why I study physics as much as I do. I think any philosopher has to study physics. And you cannot construct a metaphysics that con contradicts physics. It can be wider than physics. It can theorize and speculate on theories that physics have not approached yet or haven't proved yet. That could make it more interesting. And at the end of the day, philosophy is supposed to be interesting, not to be true. But you cannot base philosophy on what you know is already a lie. This is when I never know how to, if I should trust you completely, because 
you say something with complete conviction and then you turn around and you say something like that about philosophers. Well, They're philosophy is an art form. Philosophy is not a science. Philosophy is way bigger than science. Whenever you say we don't need philosophy anymore because you got science, you just made a philosophical statement, not a scientific statement. So you've just shot yourself. Because you've just created a very limited and stupid form of philosophy called scientism. The belief that science is the ultimate truth. Well, it isn't because there is a bigger picture than science itself. Science is just a human activity How do you performed on a specific planet by certain creatures called human beings. Now, philosophy can embrace the entire universe and way more than science does. And science actually, actually gets all the concepts that science works with. It inherits from philosophy. The philosopher invents the concepts on which the scientist then builds an hypothesis that the scientist can try. Yeah, you made me lose my thread a bit. But uh, what I was going to say was, how do you differentiate between the truth of action, the truth of being, yeah. being tru truthful? Yeah. How do you differentiate that from meaning? They're tied together. They're definitely tied together. It definitely leads to the phallic. So as a man, I would say it's impossible to, to connect your self-identity without a truth-seeking mission being involved in it. So you go out there as a hunting, you're going to hunt an animal. You better understand the factual reality of the forest where you're going to hunt. Otherwise, that animal is going to beat you to it and you're not going to be very successful. And also, if you're going to collaborate with the other hunters in the hunting team, you better have a form of communication which is based on reality and truthfulness. Because if somebody shouts to you whether a boar or a moose is coming or not, it better be true. So truth in that sense is a fundamental aspect of tribal life, especially in the phallic mode. And that's exactly when written language arrives. Written language is either storytelling or it is truth-seeking. And this is exactly the difference, for example, between poetry and philosophy. So poetry tries to, you know, make the world grander by inventing new colors and new things that it adds to the world and it adds to the human conditions. So it's about enriching the human condition. That's what, that's what poetry does. And there's a poetry in the feminine. It's not particularly interested in truth as facts, for example. Whereas the philosophers are vainly tries to chase down the minute details of human life and tries to understand the emergent properties of human life so that we can understand the world better. So basically the philosopher puts language to science and thereby widens science to understand the world better. So philosophy is obsessed with factuality. It's trying to create a language that can reach to factuality. So how can we create a language that reaches there? And not in the sense that mathematics can create mathematical perfection because that, that doesn't really hit it, doesn't really nail it rather create a living language that can still understand and interpret the world as it exists. And this is, of course, the vein, more or less successful entrepreneurship of the philosopher. So, yeah, but they're not only there for entertainment. They're also supposed to seek truth. I mean, poetry could be there for only entertainment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you can find, uh, I mean, with your definition of truth, you could find truth in poetry as well, uh, uh, or meaning. Well, it's a difference between, say, a movie which has a story, doesn't have to be truthful at all, but it's truthful in the sense that it, it reveals the human predicament that that's what, what we find interesting to watch a movie. And actually, the less it is true, the better off it is, right? Because it's easier for us to comprehend it if it doesn't stay true to a real thing that happened or whatever. But a documentary film is supposed to be true. We don't like when we find out that the documentary film has just staged something, right? Because then it's no longer a documentary, it's fiction. So it's really, really important to understand this, this difference between truth-seeking and fiction. And, and ultimately, that's poetry and philosophy in a deeper sense. The two different literary art forms, both art forms.
But one is striving towards enriching the world and the other one is towards nailing the world as it is. And then, of course, the philosopher is on the side with the scientist. The philosopher wants to nail the world. That's exactly what a scientist wants to do too. What is the factual reality of life? So meaning for you, what is it exactly? How do you view meaning? Because when, when you say that you watch a movie and it's not true, but in its acting out, it reveals something about the human condition. If it's a good one. Right? Yes, if it's a good one. There's a lot And of bad movies too, and they completely ignore that mission. They certainly do. I've mm -hmm. watched nothing but bad movies, movies for the last two months. The Darkest Hour, I thought, was the best one of them. Uh, but uh, uh, so, uh, but. And The Darkest Hour is a good example, because there you have something that is based on true events, but it's obviously dramatized and staged, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it reveals a deeper meaning about the human condition. So that's how I view it. I don't view it as necessarily mythological. You could call it mythological truth, then. It's fictional, yes. It's the point of fiction. Fic mythology is the ultimate form of fiction. Yes, but there you, in mythology, you create meaning. That's how you interpret or understand the world, right? Yes. It can, at least when it's good, become a tool for you to orientate yourself in the world. And sometimes you do that. Even in philosophy, you can use poetic expressions. I mean, both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky are obviously both philosophers and poets at the same time. But it's a rare combination. In general, philosophers write in a clumsy but very exact way. It's just like, it's, it's, it's not the beautiful language of the poet. It's more like trying to nail something as exactly as possible. But you That's don't, what philosophers try to do. Do you try to nail it as exactly as possible? Yes, when? I do. You do? Yeah. Because you write quite poetically. I wouldn't say that. I don't no? think John Sedeckis and I write that Okay, beautifully done. Well, we have our language. We've agreed on a style that we're comfortable with. But our texts are very dense and very concentrated because we have a lot of things to say and we want to say them in one book. And you have. Because I, I, the way I view it, there's only one truth, and that's what you called factuality, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Uh, one plus one is two. That's a truth. Yeah. For what me. is the outside world like, and what am I like inside this outside world? Who am I? And what is the subject that I experience? Precisely. And, and in that, you can find truth. But then you have the concept of meaning, and, and I view that differently. Because for me, meaning is understanding truth. I'm not sure about that at all. I... I I would say that we've discovered that nobody gives us meaning, so we have to find meaning in ourselves. Well, you can give birth to a child and you probably have tons of purpose in your life. So for the girls, it's a bit easier. They have a bit of a cheap route there. They won't have purpose in their lives. But men in general, you know, they more or less kill themselves if you don't find some sense of purpose. So it's incredibly important to find a purpose in your life. If there's anything we agree on with Jordan Peters is probably the fact that you have to find purpose in your life and your journey. Your life journey is about finding that purpose and then, of course, uh, living it, li living out your purpose to accomplish that, to reach completion. Until death, because dying for a purpose is much more joyful than dying without a purpose. Well, I think you can have a complete life and then discover you're old and you're still going to live for a few more years and just enjoy them. But I think reaching completion before you die is, all, all, is, is what purpose is about. And you cannot reach completion without a purpose. So you need the purpose first. To me, the best way to work with the purpose in a general sense, I mean, anybody's allowed to pursue any kind of purpose they can find. But for me, it is to find an archetype identity and then try to nurture that in a modern context. That doesn't mean you're going to live your life exactly like people of your archetype have lived life in the past. Because the world is very different now from what it was, say, 400 years ago, 4,000 years ago. You're likely to still live a very different life that has a novelty to it, that makes it unique. 
but try to find out what your archetype is. Ask others and let them guide you to, to that kind of archetype that you are, in what way you contribute best to the community as a whole. And then stay within that archetype and just fulfill that archetype. Even expand it, challenge it. See what you can do more with in your plan, and your life will be filled with purpose. My life is filled with purpose because I found my archetype. It is a bit confusing, though, that the trickster in modern Sweden needs to promote order rather than chaos. Tricksters often have. They very well, often have. Yeah, well, it's you... only totalitarian dictatorships that the trickster goes for the chaos, right? But in a chaotic society that has attacked and torn down any kind of authority, and does it routinely for a long time, and evened everything else, it become like a bland, chattering smudge on one level, with no permission for hierarchy, which in the long term is going to be disastrous. Then the purpose of the trickster is definitely to step in and say that we need more order. So the, the trickster can be on the side of the phallus against the matrix, or on the matrix against the phallus, depending on what's lacking. It's actually a very dialectical role. And that is the archetype you found for yourself, isn't it? I don't know. I, 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 there's a certain thing about my personality when I interact with other people that make me come across more priestly, I think. But I'm a field Perhaps. priest. I'm not a court priest. But there's a difference between the court priest and the field priest. The court priest has more androgynous character and he's a go-between between the inner circuit and the outer circuit in the tribe. So that means that the, the court priest is often a go-between between hopefully functioning matriarchy and hopefully functioning matriarchy. Between the matriarchy and the patriarchy, you need the court priest. So the court priest is very much also aligned with storytelling. You're a court priest if you, uh, you know, dictate what the world looks like at 11 o'clock on Sundays in the church. Right? That's a court priest personality archetype. The difference is that the field priest archetype is at the very outskirts of the outer circuit. It's far removed from the inner circuit and the life of women. I don't live with women to begin with. I had a girlfriend for a long time, but I don't live with women. I prefer to live with men. I'm just more comfortable that way. Yeah. I like the field. I like to be out there. And the field priest is, of course, allied with the military force and the hunting teams and also allied with connections with other tribes. So a field priest can very likely become a philosopher who writes books on metaphysics, which is the ultimate form of storytelling. And of course, he's striving towards reach a storytelling where, say, two tribes could have a shared storytelling, meaning they don't have to go to war with each other. So it's also, it's not so much diplomacy, like in avoiding a war that's already happened and peace settlements need to be reached, but rather it, it's, it's constructing a storytelling that means war will not have to happen along the line anyway. Those resources, the, the, the military forces, can instead be used for other purposes in that case. For example, in building huge buildings and constructions and things like that. So the field priest is interested in, in the ultimate phallic. He's definitely a phallus worshiper, and he's interested in where can we take the tribe in the future? What is the overall vision where we all can go? So I'm, I'm like the total opposite of Swedish society in 2018. I'm like, I'm, I'm as opposed, as a personality, I'm as opposed to what you would say are the ideals in contemporary societies you could possibly get. How do you feel about Michel Foucault? I liked Michel Foucault a lot. I read him when I was younger, and I, I felt very associated with him. I think if you don't want to be Marxist, and if you want to kill my Marxism, you probably turn me into Foucauldian. Because Foucault's roots are in That's Nietzsche. That's where I'm heading. Okay. You're almost prescient, actually. Okay. So Foucault is a Nietzsche, and he's not a Marxist. He's the very last into 1982. He's very, very adamant at that. I said, I don't understand why people are throwing the Marxist title after me all these years, because I was always a Nietzsche. 
So he's interested in the power games in the set of Nietzsche's. But Foucault would hate the relativists that dominate discourse today and sort of claim his Do you name. think? Yes, he would, absolutely. Because he wasn't very moral. I'm not, saying that, I, I'm, I'm not saying that he was a bad person or anything. I'm just saying that his views on morality were very Nietzschean. Yes. That, that's, uh, I think, the best way I can put it. He yeah. was practically an amoral, not immoral, amoral. But I think all Nietzscheans are, because you, you, don't re, you don't believe in morality, you believe in ethics, if anything. So values have to be ethical, they cannot be But do you think Foucault had ethics, then? Oh, I think he did. He definitely favored certain things that he decided to write about, uh, you know, instead of other things. He celebrated certain things. Incarceration was his big thing. Hmm? Incarceration was one of the things well, he... what he was interested in is the fact that we have a very banal idea of power. Like, there is this authority here, and this authority controls us and manipulates us, and we're the slaves to this authority. Which is a very childish fantasy of the tyrannical father completely controlling the child. And then Foucault discovered, even from within himself, that this is not a human being's function at all. The vast majority of human beings are looking for submission. They want to find somebody they can serve, and then they pretend that they're serving this authority, but actually being controlled by the authority. And this is incredibly Nietzschean. This is Nietzsche's story of the master versus the slave. So Foucault really exposes that. And what he then does in the way that Marx would have done too is that he takes that Nietzschean ideal and throws it into the social and start looking at society, how society as a whole operates. So Foucault is at its best when it looks at how society operates. And what he then exposed, if you read him correctly, is that exposed the hypocrisy involved with bourgeois society. And first, bourgeois society says that authority is tyranny, we want to get rid of authority so we can be free. And he just said, no, you don't want to be free at all. You love authority too much. Power goes both ways. You both love to be submitted to power, and power loves to control you, hopefully. And this is interchange, this network dynamical relationship between the master and the slave that basically runs society. So he then exposed that, exposed that hypocrisy. What he then did was that he went after what uh, Foucaultian called Giorgio, Giorgio Agamben, later it's called the Homo Sasser. So this is, this is the character of society that's so, made so invisible that nobody even sees this character. This is a character that everybody's allowed to lynch against and, and bully against and kill if they like because nobody cares if you do. So in, in, in modern society, this would be the drug addict and the sex worker. And then maybe some of the immigrants, but not really the immigrants because the, the, certain political correctness is, you know, means you cannot attack the immigrants without paying a price for it at least. But you can attack the sex workers and you can attack the drug addicts in contemporary society. And if they die, you don't care. If you belong to the bourgeoisie, then you don't care how many people die from opiate abuse because they only have themselves to blame. That's the theory at least. And this, of course, a really rotten, shitty idea of how you treat other human beings. And Foucault decided to expose this. And by going compassionate himself in a sort of foundational, ethically compassionate, not, not so much emotional, but just being ethically compassionate, by exposing this hypocrisy, he thought he could then reveal how society works and start a debate on how you could actually have an authentic society that actually authentically cares about the people at the bottom of society. So the Foucauldian political uh, stance is to find the homo sacer, Find the guy in society that's made invisible, that's hated so much, used as an abject, so much to unify the rest of society. So he's made invisible. Because you Find that guy, speak for that guy, and let that guy speak for himself. And then you become a Foucaultian. Because you've done this your entire life, haven't you? Yes, I have. You're and in the, the Rose Alliance in Sweden? Yes. And the difference between me and the social justice warriors is that I do not celebrate Homo Sasser as a victim. 
I say that what I do by letting Homo Sarsa speak instead of somebody else is that I celebrate Homo Sarsa as a, a, a hero. And I genuinely love these characters. I genuinely love the sex workers and, and the drug addicts and drug users out there. I, I think these guys are amazing. I do love these people. And I speak for them or I let them speak for themselves and silence the power to try to silence them. But it's not about the social justice warrior competition that everybody should be seen and heard. When I say that the sex worker should speak for himself, it is because the sex worker knows what sex work is like. Yeah. It is because power doesn't understand what sex work is and therefore meets sex workers with prejudice. So either somebody who can tell how sex workers' lives are and thereby being employed by sex workers or the sex worker himself should be allowed to speak because the truth will be with the sex worker, not with the power that prejudices itself and then attacks the sex worker. How old were you when you read uh, Foucault? In my teens, yeah. Because I wanted to meet him. I wanted to meet Foucault and Fassbinder a lot, and I missed them both by only a few months. How so? Because I was supposed to meet them, and they both died. When was this? Early 1980s. Really? Yeah. You were supposed to meet them where? Yeah, in, in the surroundings. Fassbinder lived in Munich, and, and Foucault lived in Paris at the time, and I lived in Amsterdam, and I had meetings arranged, and they both died within a few months. Sorry to hear that. because yeah, the reason two queer geniuses, if anything, right? Well, three. Uh, just w- one of them is still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but um, Pim Fortain was the third one. Was he? Yeah. He was a queer genius too. Absolutely. And killed. No? Am I thinking? He was murdered later, yeah. yeah. It is contemporary with me. What did the generation after Foucault and Fassbender? Because the thing is, I've, I've read a bit of Foucault and I like him sometimes. He writes very well, well, but it's just in the last few years I've started reading about his life. And mm-hmm. when I read about his life, I'm reminded of you on almost every page. Really? Yes. I, I, I find you quite similar as people. Except I'm not a homosexual masochist. No, but you're no. a bisexual sadist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Aren't you? No. Yeah, some sort of twisted... <laughs> version of a call then in that case. Yeah, well, I see a lot of similarities. No, no, I, we I shave don't. Our I don't mean. Yeah, I don't mean. And we're public intellectuals. <laughs> yes, but also I think uh, it is your capacity for change. I think, and mm-hmm. also that you're almost self-effacing in a way. He he didn't put himself forward that much. No, no, and he didn't have to. He was quite charismatic. Yeah. And he lived in Sweden in the 1950s and hated it. Hated it. He hated it. He saw yes. what was coming. He was prophetic. Yes. He saw exactly what was coming. What, what Ashkan Fardas cleverly is called today the autodictatorship of the Swede was something that he already was bound to happen when he looked at Sweden in the Can 1950s. you explain that? I, I, I understand what you, because I live here, so I understand what you mean by uh, autodictatorship, but maybe you'd like to explain. Well, the to... autodictatorship with the auto tyrant is that your superego is so strong that it controls you completely. And you don't understand you've actually inherited from a certain state ideology. Your world could have been completely different. Your world could have been different. But you've just inherited what is essentially Swedish state ideology. And this and, is and, so and this interesting is, and unique yeah. to Swedes, I would say. Isn't you don't it? need a police when no. everybody has an internal police inside of them. This is, of course, great insight that modernity was moving towards a society where everybody controlled themselves in a way that they were their own policemen, meaning their desire was not let loose. It wasn't desire or drive. It actually was losing people the way Nietzsche or Lacan would have it, but rather people controlled themselves and, and got so much enjoyment out of controlling themselves that they avoided experiencing pleasure. 
Do you think that's what happened to the Swedes? That they yes. got so much enjoyment enjoyment out of controlling themselves? Yes, so they avoid experiencing pleasure. Because pleasure to them is dangerous. They get more enjoyment out of they get enjoyment out of controlling themselves and they stay with that. So their whole life is full of you need to go to the gym, you need to carry the kids, you need to change the diapers, you need to get married, you need to believe whatever is told out there, and you need to follow the lynch mob if the lynch mob gets started. Because you don't even think for yourself in Swedish society. You just follow the mob wherever the mob goes. That's in general what Swedish men and women do. And they're pathetic because of it. And this country you... lacks brave, courageous people who dare to go against the stream. That's it, what it's lacking. It sure does. And I yes. blame the climate partly. Um, because I think when it's cold, dark, and you walk on ice, you have to bend your head. So it becomes a natural pose for you to go with a bent head. Well, it's also a lack of heroes in the culture itself. We have none, do we? No, and if you don't have heroes, you're going to the fake father's mode, and then you look for self-pity, and then self-pity becomes the norm. So people are wealthy, they're well-off, and they still feel sorry for themselves, and they take pills and, and, and strive to get pathological you know, diagnoses. They, can, they, can, they have somebody else to blame for the fact that they don't deal with their own shit. You know me, I get my pills from the free market. Um, mm. but, uh, so, uh, but you said earlier when we Or talked you nurture about the economy of the immigrant uh, suburbs. Well, you could call I think we should. It, yeah, I, I call I it an anarcho-individualist experiment. Yes. <laughs> but um, you said earlier that uh, they have a, Swedes have inherited a state ideology that makes them uh, individually repressed. What do yeah. you mean by this? Because this is interesting. I want to go into the state ideology that makes people. Because if we could export this to the rest of the world, they'd need no police either. No, that's true. <laughs> so uh, should we delve into why Swedes are so extremely timid? I mean, this is country is kind of unique. We've never had a revolution. No, we avoid anything that's scary. Yeah. In extremists. Yeah, we hate adventure. We hate risk-taking. It's a very effeminate culture. Yeah, but it, and it comes from the Vikings who adored risk-taking. Travel, yeah, but, meeting the Yeah, but foreign. our connection to the Vikings is long gone. I mean, hundreds of years since we were Vikings in Sweden. And we went, went through a short imperial period when Protestant Sweden dominated Northern Europe. Yes, for a short while. For a short while, yeah. And then we, we, we fell that... back into the mode of being a small country that goes into isolation and tries to avoid conflicts at all times. And I think it has to do with the Baltic Sea. It has to do with our geography. The rest of Europe was constantly plundered and invaded. The threat was always from the east. Just like in China, the threat was always from the west. Because if you go to Central Asia, you discover they have the steppe. And there you can have horses, which you could never afford. In, in the European river valleys or in the Chinese river valleys, you cannot afford to raise horses. But if you sit on a horse, you're incredibly powerful, about 100 times more powerful than you are if you don't have a horse. So it didn't take that many Mongols or Tatars or Huns or whatever when there was overpopulation in Central Asia or starvation, or even overpopulation combined with sudden starvation, people in Central Asia suddenly were on the move. And they came riding on horsebacks and stormed over Europe from the east towards the west. This is Europe's history, essentially. The longer history of Europe over the last few thousand years is this history of constant invasions from the east. The fall of the Roman Empire is just one of them. China's history is the history of constant invasions from the northwest towards China. So there was one part of Europe that escaped all these attacks, and that was Scandinavia. Yeah. Because you had to go through northern Finland, 
which is mostly snow and ice. And fins, which yeah, are fins. really, really hard to go through. And few villages to plunder. Yes. Okay? Not a lot of resources there. It's very, very unlikely that you'd have a storming population coming from these. The only ones that did that actually were the Finns themselves. They came from the east and settled in what's contemporary Finland. And the Swedes stayed on the coast. Yep. But and also Scandinavia we- was because of this peaceful. And it's not just that Sweden has been at peace for the past 20 years and avoided open wars with the rest of the world and conspired instead with other powers to avoid war. It's more like you've had very few wars on the Scandinavian peninsula. It's been very, very peaceful in that sense. The Vikings were only plundering Europe because Europe was weak and we had an overpopulation because of a temporarily warm climate in Scandinavia. During the Viking period, grapes grew in most of Scandinavia. So the climate was warmer than it was before or after. So because you had a warmer, yes, and because you had a warmer climate in Scandinavia, you had a larger population. This larger population then had, when climate got colder again, this larger population had to travel south to get materials. So the outer circuit sort of traveled south and brought stuff back to the inner circuit that stayed at home in Scandinavia. And this was essentially the Scandinavian Viking culture. So what happened then? When did we become this servile, timid, non-revolutionary Peace-loving people. It must have from from the 1600s and onwards. Well, Europe got a lot stronger, and after the Swedish Empire fell apart, and the Russians constructed an empire to the east, and Germany got way way stronger and started to unify. There was really no role for the Scandinavians to try to conquer the European continent. It had a much larger population, a much more resources, and was more willing to fight than we were. So the Scandinavians stayed in Scandinavia, and since then, the Baltic Sea protected Sweden from the Russians most of the time. At least they had to have a fleet to attack us. And they were weak with the fleet because mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of sea seafaring going on. So the Swedes could pretty much stay out of the major conflicts of Europe. So while Europe has been sort of plundered and, you know, ridden with war over the past 400 years, Scandinavia has mostly stayed peace- peaceful. This has created a mythology in Scandinavia that is because of the Scandinavian's nobility. That we peaceful, don't partake in war. Well, they're just fucking lucky. It's the geography that made Scandinavia peaceful. And then also, but this creates, of course, a cowardly culture. Yes, and that promotes cowardice because we have no yes. need of courage, no, or at be- least not physical violent courage. This cowardice becomes self-reinforcing. And after Norway left Sweden in the early 1900s, and Sweden has just stayed in its own cocoon and tried to defend itself from the outside world, which basically we don't want to be informed about the outside world. We have to remember that. News about events going on in the rest of the world didn't really reach people in Sweden until the late 1980s. I would say that the media climate in Sweden was very similar to North Korea's until about 1989. And then, of course, the Internet Revolution took hold too, so you could have access to information, you could get a different worldview. For example, when you take uh, the policy on drugs in Sweden, it's yeah, definitely crazy. generational issue. Yeah. If you're a younger generation, you've had news from all over the world and you've traveled and you're experienced and realize the drugs are not as dangerous as you thought they'd be because they, 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 they're actually handled by the culture that they do not fall apart just because people take drugs or because drugs are legal. Okay. So there's a big difference here between the younger generation in Sweden who are traveled and experienced and have read in the outside world and the older generation who stay with the old sort of North Korean dogma that all day drugs are dangerous. You die if they take them, so they must be banned or otherwise their society falls apart, which of course is pure bullshit, right? So there's a lot of bullshit being exposed, but what isn't exposed yet in Sweden is the fact that we've made the coward our ideal. So avoiding conflict is the ideal, for example, of what it means to be a man in Sweden. And it's a really weak 
really corrupted idea. And that's that can't be too old, right? Well, I think it's grown over a long period of time and then became reinforced. And the idea that we were neutral during the wars and that somehow paid off and we were neutral because we were clever, mm-hmm. not neutral because we were cowards. You know, it's just, it, it, we haven't really dealt with that. The thing is that if you don't participate in a war formally, you don't think you got anything to deal with afterwards. Yeah. If you lose the war, then at least you got something to deal with, which Germany had to do with Nazism. But Sweden never dealt with with its past. It never dealt with what it did during the Second World War and how compromised it actually was and how it changed its mind depending on who was the winning side. And that means Swedish culture is very vulnerable to lynch mobs because a lynch mob is, 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 uh, is a flock you belong to that runs in a certain direction mm-hmm. and you, you tend to believe it runs in the right direction because you don't want to see anything else. And then when the lynch mob turns, you run with the other direction and then you try to reclaim your story and, and, and change it and rewrite it and say, that oh, but I was running in this direction all along. And Swedes do this constantly. And you and you know you know that this is the fact when Swedes talk about attachment and detachment. So if you objectify somebody, if you say that somebody is impure, unclean, dirty, to be disgusting, you know, if you if you if you want to have that sort of attitude towards somebody, like you want to have a distance to them, you objectify them. And the way you do that is by you you tell your neighbor that oh you don't have an association with this person, do you? Are you attached to this person somehow? Is there an attachment between the of you? Shame get of association. Get rid of that person instantly. Yeah, exactly. So get rid of that association. You must not be associated with that person. Do not answer the phone. Do not answer the email. Do not answer the letter. Pretend as if you never knew that person. Incredibly vile reaction. And that happens in Sweden all the time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm shocked that Swedes tell me, they also tell you constantly, that we have to detach ourselves from certain people because these people are now unclean. Well, they do try to detach themselves from me, but I don't really find any pleasure in socializing with cowards so it's not really that much of a punishment is it absolutely disgusted with swedish detachment culture I the find freezing it out phenomenon if my ethics stands for anything it is the fact that a detachment culture is absolutely pathetic i have no problem at all being attached to anybody you want to attach me to because and you I know have, what you stand for yes yeah, and so. i can have a dialogue with anybody i can talk to anybody of any political opinion or any religious conviction i live in a damned open society i practice free speech and i believe in free speech and i let anybody speak their minds it, it, it's just fundamental for a civilized society and i i think this whole sort of modern detachment culture this 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 cherishing of the detachment as if there was some kind of an achievement There's no achievement in detaching yourself from a person because you're scared of being associated with that person. That's just pure cowardice. It's nothing else. So then you have a country full of cowards. No wonder Michel Foucault hated it because he wasn't a coward. He saw it happening. And he saw that people enjoyed being cowards. They enjoyed having this little police guy inside of their head that essentially told them to avoid any sort of conflicts they would have to pay a price so, for. Do you think that he might have been a Marxian? He moved to Sweden and then he thought better of it. Because that's my view when I read. Have you read Susan Sontag's letters from Sweden? Yes. She's an American socialist. She gets a grant to do uh, feature films in Sweden. So she moves to Sweden. Sweden is held up as this sort of socialist utopia in the United States. She comes here and she fucking hates it. Yeah. 
because she can't take how much violence an individual must do to their own person in order to make the society work. Yeah. Because people don't understand that. I mean, I personally, like, I've been to Japan once and I loved it. It was so ordered. It was so clean. Everything worked. It was so, the service is excellent. But then I started thinking, would I like to grow up as a Japan, a Japanese person in Japan? No, I wouldn't. Because mm. I'd have to, uh, you know, focus so much on rules and all, all of these unwritten rules and norms around you that you have to adhere to. Mm. And But then again, I grew up in Sweden, which is sort of a... A sucky version of Japan, mm. uh, because at least Japan has been to war. So you know they they're not peace damaged or traumatized There's by pride peace. Pride connected to purpose in Japanese culture, for example, you take enormous pride in your profession. Yes. So at least it's tribal, in that sense, which excuses quite a lot. Yeah. But but it's true in a modern context, it's a culture that also is now built on its mythology of its own pacifism after 1945. And as soon as you introduce pacifism as an achievement rather than just a lucky thing that happened, um, then you get a major problem. Then you get a cowardly culture and a very anti-phallic culture. Meaning women are constantly frustrated because they don't get fucked properly and men run around being cowards instead of being real men. And that's why I see everywhere in Sweden, tragically. Yeah, I agree completely. Thank you for listening to The Aryan and the Jew, episode 7. I am Aaron Flam. You have been listening to Alexander Bard, and he has just released his latest book, Digital Libido, Sex, Power and Violence in the Network Society, together with Jan Söderqvist. And on the back I can read, Digital Libido is a deep and brutal analysis of humanity's rapidly increasing sense of loss and confusion in the network society, departing from Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, and his prophetic masterpiece, Civilization and its Discontents. Philosophers and futurologists Alexander Bard and Jan Söderqvist create a tour de force while digging deep into the human condition in the internet age. Exposing every aspect of the complex relationship between man and technology, Bard and Söderqvist clarify our current and future existential dilemmas. So thank you for listening to The Aryan and the Jew, episode 7. You will hear us in episode 8 next week. But before that, I want to sincerely thank you who supports this podcast on Patreon, where you can find us as The Aryan and the Jew. Until next time, have a good unit of time.